Hello, this is Julie Hendren and Rachel Mann, and you're listening to What Are They Thinking, the second episode. The second episode. So it took us a little while to get the first one up and running. However, um, George, do you want to pipe in and kind of say some of the work that happened behind the scenes on that? Quite a bit. He did a lot of work. I have been working over the past two weeks to get this up and running, and I've learned a lot. So can you kind of tell us a little bit about why it took so long? Like what went behind it that you weren't expecting? I didn't realize that I would need to code things and it was a, it was a learning experience, but it, it turned out well. And, uh, our first episode as of now is up on Stitcher and will be on, uh, Apple podcast and Google play music. Awesome. Also wanted to give a huge shout out to Arjun Berry, Jonathan Mulker, and Sam Shadwell um, for helping us IT wise with this. It takes a village to get a podcast up and running, evidently. As we learned. And Rachel and I were next to useless. Um, (laughs) I was the most useless out of everything because I barely know how to turn on a computer so there's that <laughs> we, we were like we'll get do the actual podcast we'll do the talking and the research on our subjects and, and the then talent. hand it over yeah, yeah we're rachel, the talent rachel kept going we're the talent <laughs> and then george would roll his eyes but i yeah, will give so, him credit on that so rachel did help a lot by keeping me distracted uh, over these last couple weeks and uh you know it's it's it was it's a very really hard important. job it was really important well you know netflix and then Netflix and Netflix. Yeah. But the important thing is that we're here. We're yes. here and we have a published podcast at least on web, one website. So hopefully by the time this comes out, it's published on several websites. Yeah, and everyone's available like... Available for everyone, so... Yes. Everyone will be like, what are they talking about? This thing's always been on <laughs> iTunes. Um, yeah, we hope. That's okay, well, thank you, George. Yes, yep. so thank you, George, and all of our other friends you guys were great in actually doing like the legwork to get this going. Yes. And also our followers on Facebook and Twitter, because we told you guys, hey, we finished recording. We're just now editing. And then a week and a half later, there is still no podcast up. So thank you guys for your patience. And you're awesome. We did say soon. And soon in our terms means a week and a half. And I think that that's, that's, that's fine. That's good. <laughs> Yeah, but thanks uh, to our friends for supporting us and all that. Now we just need you guys to listen. Yes. Um, but we are back in action. We're back in our podcast room room. Yes. And we are talking about New Year, new mental health resolutions. And it's, what, January 15th at this point? 14th. 14th. So we're like two weeks into the new year and we're finally like, hey, we should talk about well our resolutions. By this point in the year, let's be honest, everybody no one's actually done the resolution. Let's all eat healthy. Let's work out more. Which I mean, like Julie and, I have, <laughs> Julie and I have done that. And I can tell when I go to Kroger and there's no freaking broccoli or spinach or cauliflower or anything like that, that I actually need because I eat it year long and it's not there. Oh, that makes me so mad. But I went to Kroger the other day and it was all there. So I'm guessing everybody's given up already. Yeah, we got a little bitter about the fact that we couldn't find like bell peppers. But we got over ourselves. We're glad that America is trying to eat healthier. Yes. You should stick to it, guys. So I actually kind of got to pick the topic this time. And I told Julie, there's this website. It's called The Mighty. 
So The Mighty is a website and they have all of these different topics such as they have mental health and just health in general. And the really cool thing about them is that instead of authors, they have contributors who write about their own personal experiences. So you get some in different topics such as you have some people who have borderline personality disorder that'll talk about their struggles with that, some people who have anxiety or um, they're also on Facebook, which is actually how I found them. And they'll ask people um, about different topics like, hey, if you experienced emotional abuse as a child, what is one of the things that you notice you do as an adult? And so they get all of these, um, all of this feedback from everybody. So everything that they put has been, it's just c contributed. Everybody contributes to this. So Brian Barks is the contributor for the article that we're using which is uh, mental health stigma resolutions. So there's five of them, and I'm going to just go ahead and read them to you. And then Julie and I are just going to kind of discuss them. And then later, we're going to talk about our own five um, personal health resolutions for the year. Yeah, our mental health resolutions. Yes. So the first one that um, was in this article is stop using mentally ill as a derogatory adjective. The second one is recognizing that mental illness is not a significant risk factor for interpersonal violence. Third one, talk openly about suicide. Number four, be compassionate to others and yourself. And five, educate those around you. All of these are very important. And as soon as I read that, I'm like, you know what? That just completely falls into what we're trying to do here at What Are They Thinking? Um, and it's just... I liked it because I think it's one of those ways how we can just kind of advocate while also hitting multiple topics. Um, we're not going to go deep into each of them, especially um, goal number three, which is talk openly about suicide. We'll probably have our own. We'll have a whole episode so dedicated to suicide um, and suicide prevention. So we're going to give you some key takeaways and some resource tips right. and we'll be talking more later. Yeah. Okay, so um, like I said, the first one is stop using mentally ill as a derogatory adjective. So what um, in the article, which we will post a link to that on Facebook and also on Twitter, um, basically people are, have a lot of insensitive language when it comes to discussing mental illness. Um, it's just one of those things of like, it just kind of drives me up the wall. Of course, you know, I have my background is in mental health. So I think it's a little bit harder for people whose background is in mental health or for people who have a diagnosis. We take this very personally, mm -hmm. I feel like, do you do that, Julie? I definitely do. Like I recently noticed a woman that I'm friends with on Facebook saying that um when she was a teenager she was so socially anxious but now she's like and now that's just magically gone and i was like social anxiety just doesn't disappear in, no. in 10 years that's something you always struggle with um or when someone will like clean their house and they send you that thing uh that snapchat oh, i'm so ocd about this you're like you're really not exactly. and it's just very frustrating because that's when you say things like that it's what people believe it's actually like um, right or when you're mad at someone and you'll say oh she's so psychotic and that's no she's not you're just mad at her and you don't like her and she might be being a little overbearing at that moment right well, and then things such as like, you know, you were talking about it, calling someone or something schizophrenic, bipolar, OCD. And just first of all, I have issues with that because when I was in my program, we were taught to use P 
people first language, which mean, which means you don't use a mental health diagnosis as what somebody is. Like you don't say, oh, she's schizophrenic. You'd say she has schizophrenia. And you only say that if you have the criteria, like if you have the correct education and qualifications to diagnose. So if you've taken Psych 101 and maybe 102, you do not have the correct qualifications. Maybe after six and a half years of college, you do. (laughs) Um, Also, kind of just stay in your lane. I don't know why people feel the need to put a label to that. I'm a person who loves labels. They help me. I love being able to label emotions and all of these other things. And George is laughing at me because we have labels over there. On the table right now. On the table right now. But I love that. However, I don't feel the need to label everything as a mental health diagnosis. Yeah, not everybody has a mental health diagnosis. And I think there is this idea with millennials that everybody has anxiety or everybody has depression even. exactly, And we're not giving credit to what those experiences are actually like. And then at the same time, when you're mad at somebody and you say – like in their worst moment, oh, she's so she's so crazy. She's so psychotic. You're leading people to believe that's right. what pe- the people who have that disorder are like. That's not true at all. Exactly. And that's just kind of what really bothers me on it. And then I was telling Julie this on the way to go get lunch the other day. I have issues beca- with people saying that somebody has OCD or that they are OCD because I've worked in a mental health hospital I've seen what true like debilitating OCD looks like. It's not pretty. It's not glamorous. It's not a clean room. It's overwashed hands that have like layers of skin missing. It's somebody not being able to hold a relationship because they can't leave their house without flipping the lights on and off 17 times and going back to the bathroom and like turning the water on and off like a certain number of times. I mean, true OCD is like, it's I mean, debilitating. It's debilitating. And of course, there's different ranges as there is with any kind of mental health diagnosis. But wanting your room to be clean, that does not make you OCD. Wanting things to be organized, that does not make you OCD. That makes you a very clean person and you should come over to my house and clean it. Yes. <laughs> but other than that, like it doesn't mean that you have this mental health diagnosis. However, I'm just saying this for anybody who is listening. If you feel like that's taking over your life, then you might want to go seek help for that. And maybe go see a counselor or um, or a counselor, maybe a psychiatrist. What we need to remember as a society is that when we give these labels to poor behavior, which they're so often assigned with, you're making it really, really difficult for people who do have these problems to be open and honest about it. Right. You're making it very difficult for people to go get the help they need. And it's it, so many people who have... Uh, a diagnosis are so ashamed of it right and they don't want to go get the help they need because what if people find out what if everybody knows that I have this and that's awful we should be supporting those people you know nobody wants to have obsessive compulsive disorder no one wants to be bipolar or have depression exactly the same way nobody wants to have diabetes so we should be speaking of it with compassion And I think also when we talk about it in such a negative way that it brings a sense of shame to people who actually have this, Um, especially, like I said, if you're not actually OCD um, or like, say, for instance, you don't you don't have anxiety, you're just stressed. There's a huge difference between the two. Anxiety is over something completely unrelated. Like sometimes you cannot pinpoint what your anxiety is coming from. 
but you're stressed because you have all these deadlines from your job. Okay, everybody would have a normal reaction to that. But sometimes with anxiety, you just have like, like I'll be honest, I have a really weird anxiety around the holidays of being in a car crash, like the day of or the day before a holiday. And so like, makes no sense. No one in my family has ever done that. I don't know of anybody who's had that happen. But for some reason, that's, you know, that causes me anxiety. But it's not like one of these things like stress that I can do something to get rid of it. Whereas like, oh my gosh, I have so many papers. I have to write them. Okay, I'm going to write my papers. And then that stress is gone. Unlike with this anxiety, it's always there. It sticks around. It hangs around. You're, you're always constantly working through it. And it gets easier as you learn skills and as you if you are prescribed meds as you take them it gets easier to handle and identify that that thought process and the fact that that's not necessarily logical exactly right and but it never goes away like I don't wake up there's not a magic day where I will wake up in the morning and be oh I'm not I don't have anxiety anymore I'm not having my obsessive thoughts I like I can just go, go, go. I'm on top of things. Um, um, I'd be out of a job if you did do that. Oh, so. I'm so sorry. I'm so <laughs> glad that I'm like mentally unstable for you. <laughs> it's okay. I can't even treat you anyway. You're a friend. No, you cannot diagnose me. Um, but that's it, it. We need to be having honest, open talks about it. Let's make that a little easier. Exactly. For everyone around you, which brings you kind of into the second point right the second point is recognize that mental illness is not a significant risk factor for interpersonal violence so as we've been kind of talking about it lately there's been a lot of shootings and like mass killings and so julie and i were kind of talking about that and we wanted to do more research into it more of julie did the research (laughs) into it and um because we were talking about the fact that like There's been a lot of politicians and a lot of people in general who just automatically assume that these shooters have some kind of mental health diagnosis. Yeah, it's you hear about a mass shooting and there have been so many lately and the discussion isn't what's how did they get the gun or what gave them this access? And that's not a conversation for here or now. But the first thing so many people say and so many politicians is, well, were they mentally ill? And did they have a, what happened to them? Why, what happened to their brain? Like something was going on with that. What's wrong with them? Exactly. And so everybody automatically assumes it's a mental health diagnosis. And actually it probably isn't. So the vast majority of people with a mental health diagnosis are not going to be violent. Exactly. Um, in fact, they're more likely to be victims of violence. Yes. And I saw a lot of that at my work at the mental health hospital, which I'll kind of get into a little bit later. Um, But Julie has um, done some research for us, and I'm really interested to kind of hear what you found. Yes. So here's what is actually most likely to bring about violence. And you're more likely to be violent if you're male, if you're young, if you have a history of domestic violence, if you have a history of substance abuse, alcohol and drugs, or if you're currently using. All of these things are actually risk factors. For things like mass shootings and shooting deaths in general. Okay. So a study in the American Journal of Public Health found um, that less than 5% of of the 120,000 gun-related killings in America between 2001 and 2010 were committed by people with a diagnosed mental health problem. 
So, oh, so like, wait, less than 5% out of that many. Less than 5% out of the 120,000 homicides used uh, gun homicides were okay. committed by people with a mental health diagnosis. Oh, okay. That's interesting. So that changes the conversation. It really does because you think it would be more. But then, I mean, that's over like from 2001 to 2010. That's a pretty good time period to get all of that data collected. So to think that it's only, you know, less than 5% is pretty amazing. It's, it's very, very small. And in general, if you do have someone who has a mental health diagnosis who does commit an act of violence, they usually have a dual diagnosis. And that dual diagnosis comes with generally substance abuse. Okay. Which I think makes perfect sense. If you're right. high or drunk and you're feeling a little extra paranoid and you think you're being chased by that unicorn, it's not unnatural that you would become a little more violent. You would think you are in danger and you would act out. Now, um, the Harvard Health study that we found more information on shows that when they compared rates of violence in an area of Pittsburgh between people who have just one mental health diagnosis, have a dual diagnosis with the substance abuse, and the controlled setting of the general population who does not have a diagnosis, there were no significant differences in the rates of violence among among people with mental illnesses and other people living in the same neighborhood. Oh. Which just goes to show you, because somebody has a mental health di- a diagnosis does not mean that they are going to be violent. Exactly. And so one of the things that I was also kind of talking to Julie about is that through my job working with Um, kids in one of the school systems as a mental health counselor is that violence is a learned behavior. A lot of the kids that I have who they have no conflict resolution skills because they see their parents using violence as a as a source of like resolving conflict which of course we all know it doesn't it just creates even more violence. So for some of these people, I think it's one of those things, this is just what I think, is that since violence is a learned behavior, that a lot of them do come from homes where they have seen some kind of violence, or like we were talking um, earlier in the article from The Mighty, and then also some of the research we were looking at stated that um, a lot of them did kind of come, like there was some violence in their past, And then one of the things that I thought was interesting from the mighty, and then also, of course, you know, we're taught this in school, is that a lot of people with a mental health diagnosis are normally, they're not going to normally be the perpetrators. They're more likely to be victims of violence. And I can say through my work at the mental health hospital, as I did see a lot of that, and it was very sad, especially when you add in somebody who's intellectually disabled, along with having a mental health diagnosis, we saw a lot of sexual and physical abuse which is really unfortunate and I absolutely hated seeing that but they were more likely to be um somebody who was being abused just because they didn't have the ability for first of all for anybody to believe them I can't tell you how many times I've had to call um like the department of child services or the or I'm um, calling the equivalent of DCS for adults because I've had patients tell me like well this person's been beating me or this person's been like sexually assaulting me and nobody believes them because they have that mental health diagnosis attached to it so that's just kind of my little soapbox I wanted to get on is that um people with a mental health illness or diagnosis are more likely to be the victims versus being the perpetrators 
Yes, I think a lot of people have fear of people with mental health diagnosis when they're in the height of that disorder, when they're at the highest part of it. Like in the crisis mode. When they're in the crisis mode, yeah, because it's outside the norm. And anything outside the norm and your everyday expected behavior is alarming, which is natural. It's a natural human emotion for you to be a little like, whoa, what's going on over there? Um, But you should be reaching out to that person with compassion or just leaving that person alone or calling help for somebody. Right. You don't need to be afraid in general unless they're showing clear signs of immediate violence. And if they are showing those signs of immediate violence or if you are afraid of somebody's welfare, please do not feel afraid to call um, the police department or 911 because sometimes um, they do need that either medical or... um, you know, like the medical help. And then also the police department or the sheriff's department can get them in contact with either a hospital or a mental health hospital to kind of help get them more back down to baseline, which baseline is um, what we would consider normal behavior. Everybody has a different baseline though. So for some people, their baseline is is yelling at other people, thinking that they're, you know, some famous celebrity, whereas other people's baseline is what we consider more normal Um, However, if you are afraid for anybody's health or safety, please do not feel afraid or like you're being a bother to contact either the police department to let them know that this person's at this specific spot or to um, ask somebody if they're okay, unless if you feel like you are seriously going to get hurt, then stay out of that. Yeah, but we as a country have specific programs set up for if you call in and say this person is about to hurt themselves or I'm worried that this person is going to hurt somebody else. We have programs where somebody else will go out to that house and they will stay with that person until the police arrive. Right. Don't think you're being a bother. Help your neighbor. Exactly. And then um, they're also not afraid to do welfare checks, which is if you hear anything abnormal or if somebody says something abnormal, you can call um, the police department or you can call 911 in general And they'll send somebody out to the house to make sure that they're okay. I would rather over call than not call, to be honest. If you're you're concerned, like, well, they said something weird and they were doing something kind of weird afterwards. Maybe I should call the police. Um, Don't be afraid to do that, which I think kind of brings us into the next goal or uh, mental health goal, which is talk openly about suicide. Now, This is a very sensitive topic, and like Julie and I said earlier in this episode, um, it's getting its own episode. It's getting its own episode because there's just so much that needs to be, first of all, needs to be talked about, needs to be taught, and then there's just so many resources out there. And then, um, of course, I have my own little personal um, stories from working at a mental health hospital, most the Everybody mostly got there because they did attempt um, suicide. So look forward to that episode later. We will definitely give you a warning and try and keep that lighthearted, just like we're going to do for this goal. Yeah, and if you know somebody who has committed suicide, if this is a triggering topic for you, please take a quick break. Fast forward 10 to 15 minutes. Check back in. We'll probably have moved on to the next thing. Um, But the whole idea about talking openly about suicide is we have to stop making it a stigma. We have to stop whispering that, oh, she died from suicide. He died. He killed himself. Like, it's a bad thing. It should be a sad thing. Anytime somebody dies unexpectedly, it's a very sad thing. 
but we are coming from a culture where it used to be against church policy to bury somebody who killed themselves in a church graveyard. And that's really awful. And we're giving our, our culture has given this message that it's sinful and wrong and selfish. And that's not what it is. Nobody wants to kill themselves when they're healthy. Nobody exactly. wants to be dead when they're at their healthiest. This is a person who needs help, who is begging for help, but who has really reached the end of what they feel they're able to do. And it's never, oh, I want to kill myself. It's, I just want this to stop. I don't want to feel like this anymore. I don't have any value right now. Or they feel like everybody would be legitimately better off without them, which I heard that a lot. And it's interesting when people are in that deep, like pit of despair to where they are willing to complete suicide or attempt suicide. It's very interesting when the attempt um, does not go all the way through, which is always a good thing. Um, However, it's interesting for them to hear from their family what that did to them. Because a lot of times people feel like they have nothing to give or they've given all or they're just tired of hurting or something. And then um, turns out that there were a lot more people who cared than what they thought. And I like to remind my friends and even myself when I'm really mad at somebody if I think that that guy's a jerk and of course nobody likes him because he's just a giant asshole I'll be like well everybody loves somebody everyone is loved by somebody else so even if you think you are the worst person in the world which you probably definitely aren't you are loved by somebody People are going to miss you and people are going to want you around. And we should be able to openly say, though, to those people that love us, or if you can't say it to them, to complete strangers who are manning the the hotlines so that they can convince you to keep going, that you're struggling and that you just want this to end. Let's talk about it so that we can not just dwell in those feelings and come back to those thoughts and obsess over something until a fatal decision is made. Exactly. And I think one of the interesting things that um, I kind of see with the whole entire trend of talking about suicide is whenever um, we see celebrities who have completed suicide, such as Robin Williams. I think that was one where everybody was just very taken back and very surprised. And I just thought it was so interesting to see, you know, when he completed suicide, when there were other famous people such as singer like you know musicians actors um publishers when Heath Ledger died I cried for like a week see and so I think that's just one of those things that like we all kind of think about that but then you know you see this surge on social media of oh my gosh like suicide of prevention awareness and depression awareness and Oh, we all know somebody who's done this. But then, like, if I've noticed, like, this is just my own personal life, that I had somebody I went to high school with who died by suicide, and nobody talks about it. His family was so ashamed about it that they just kept it. They didn't really talk about it in the obituary that they put out in the paper. It wasn't really brought up because there was such this sense of shame. And I thought of how interesting it was because even people that we went to school with who were commenting on this guy's wall, it wasn't like how everybody responded when a celebrity died by suicide. It wasn't like this, 
overwhelming, like, oh, mental health, like, awareness, suicide prevention awareness. It was just, like, really? Like, he killed himself. Like, he really did that. Like, his life wasn't that bad. And I think that there's just this sense of, like, it's a celebrity. So, of course, they're kind of seen as godlike. And they did it. Like, you know, they died by suicide. So, let's make this huge to-do about it. But then when there's somebody who's not famous who does it, it seems to be that people don't care that much. Or, you know, the families are very shamed by it. And I think that's very sad. It is. And I think the best way we start talking about it is by when people do complete suicide. And you'll notice that we're saying complete and not commit. Exactly. Um, Just because commit makes it sound like it's a crime, which like it is a very horrible thing. However, um, complete, you know, they're dead. They did, you know, they completed it. They attempted, they completed. It's horrible. But commit makes it sound like, you know, they went to a 7-Eleven and like shot up some people. No. Yeah, they're not criminals. Exactly. They're people who lost a battle with depression or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Or addiction. Or, or addiction. Pain. Exactly. And I found this, when I was researching this, this really amazing obituary, actually. This amazing article. Um, a woman named... Eleni Pino, and I may have said your name wrong or her name wrong if anybody's listening, so I do apologize. But uh, her sister, Aletha Meyer Pino, died. She did kill herself. But her cause of death in her obituary was depression and suicide. It, okay. it was very honest. It was out there. It was, yes, my sister had depression. And she was this beautiful, bright, young woman who had so much to live for. And she didn't see it because in the height of her depression, you don't see that. You don't see your value. You exactly. don't think things are going to get better. And she, she did complete suicide. But that's an open talk. So anybody who sees that obituary is then having that conversation. They're sitting around talking to their at the breakfast table or they're talking to their friends later. And that's just so out of the norm for our society to be very honest that this woman died of depression. The same way people die from cancer. She lost her battle with depression. Exactly. And I think that's something very amazing that her sister did do. Just like I had a teacher... Um, in high school to where her daughter was like the school president. She was like president of like multiple different clubs. And within her first year of college, she actually completed suicide. And my teacher, who I'm going to leave nameless, she was just very overwhelmed, of course, because she wasn't expecting her daughter to die from this. And her daughter had been dealing with depression for a while, but nobody from the outside really knew. But she celebrated her daughter's life through trying to break that stigma of depression and suicide by making it and like making people more aware of it. And I thought that that was just such an amazing thing that she did. And like how great to honor your daughter in that way to where, and like just the same with her, I think she just honored her sister beautifully by talking so openly about suicide and depression and how that just kind of made this, like it just made it, I think just so much made a good thing out of something bad that happened. Yeah, wouldn't it be amazing to live in a society where we're so open about talking about mental health and mental health disorders where somebody is feeling that low and it's not a thing of I'm, you should be ashamed of this and you should hide this. It's a, yeah, you should go get help. You should go see a doctor for this and let's have a conversation and move on from this specific thought. It's just hard to reconcile in your mind that we have treatment for physical disorders and physical illnesses and we don't really 
have that same open conversation for mental illnesses. Exactly. And of course, as somebody who works in mental health, I think that's so horrible just because there's so many resources out there, but I don't think people know a lot of them. And also there's a lot of signs towards um, if somebody, if somebody else is going to um, attempt suicide. Also, I just wanted to say this because it's very important. Asking somebody if they're thinking about suicide does not mean that you're going to plant that idea in their head. If they've thought about it, then it's been there since before you even asked them about it. If you are thinking about suicide, we have some resources for you. Yes. Rachel looked all of these up. So the ones that I wanted to talk about is the National Suicide Prevention Hotline number, which um, I wrote that down. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. Another really cool thing about them is if you go online, they have a anonymous chat to where if you feel more comfortable talking to somebody online, then you can just um, message them. And that's uh, suicide.org. Right. Um, well, suicide.org has state-specific hotlines. So you, um, you can go on there, you just put in which state you're at, and it pulls up all of them. However, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, um, also, they just have a chat where you can go in there and chat with them. Um, so we were also kind of talking about how do you know when it's time to get help or what happens? So if you are actively seeking a way to harm yourself. If you have a plan. If you have a plan, if you have a way to complete that plan, if you actually know when and where you're going to do that, um, please either go to your your nearest ER or um, call 911 because this is when you know for a fact that you need immediate help. And... It's just one of those important things of like the quicker you can get yourself to somebody who can help you out, the better off you're going to be. So one of the things that I dealt with at the mental health hospital is that we got a lot of these people specifically straight from the ER because they go there, they go to the ER saying that they want to harm themselves. So they get sent, they would get sent to where I worked because we could keep them safe. We could get them on the correct medications and we could make sure that like they're safe and that they're being taken care of and that they're getting the proper help that they need and that's the important thing guys at the end of the day we want to save as many lives as we can and just in the same way as if you saw somebody get hit by a car you would exactly. call 911 and save their lives make that life your own if you're thinking about suicide and know that you're just as important and you're valued and you're loved and we want you here exactly um which moves us on to our fourth because i was so kind and compassionate <laughs> Yes, that's definitely why. Those so, are words people used to describe me all the time. Not sarcastic, compassionate. <laughs> compassionate, totally not sarcastically. Anyway, so number four is be compassionate to others and kind to yourself. And I cannot say how important this is because I think it's so easy to be compassionate to others, but I think it's so hard for us to be compassionate to ourselves. Absolutely. My therapist will often hear me say things like we'll be in our sessions and she'll go, would you say that to Rachel? I'm like, well, no, I would never say that to my best friend. And she's like, okay, then why are you saying it to yourself? Exactly. And that's just sometimes you have to have that thought process. Um, so just if you have a loved one who has a mental illness, tell them that you're there to listen and help. Talking about mental illness openly um, and without that sense of like judgment or shame is 
one of the really important ways so we can kind of break that stigma and have people feel more um, loved and like they're in a safe environment. And when someone calls you and they're at a bad moment with their mental illness, they're not looking for you to fix it. No. My, I, my dad struggles with this partly because he's a man and men seem to want to fix things and I'll call him and be upset and I'm just having this conversation and he'll be trying to come up with solutions or tell me to, you know, go outside or go exercise. It'll make you feel better. I'm like, I don't want a solution. I just need somebody to know that I'm feeling this way and just to hear that I'm still loved. Right. And I, I'll, sometimes I call him and I found this thing on Pinterest a while ago that it's, I need you to love me a little louder today. That's all we're looking for when when that phone is picked up. So don't feel like you have a responsibility to solve somebody's problem. Right. They just want to know that you're there. And a lot of times that's honestly what it is, is you just need somebody to listen. There's times where I'll call up uh, Julie and I'll just be like, I'm having a really hard day today. My anxiety is crazy. It's like going through the roof. I don't know why. I feel like I'm crazy. I just need to talk. And Julie will just like sit there and she'll listen mm-hmm. or like if I talk to my therapist, I'm like, I know this sounds crazy, but and I just tell him, you know, he always first of all reassures me that I'm not crazy. It's just a part of like having anxiety and depression. But at the same time, I feel like I've been heard and that like no one's trying to fix me. I feel like a lot of times never people are like, well, have you tried this or have you tried that? It's like, look, I've tried probably everything in the book, probably yep. things that you've even thought about. If it was working, then I wouldn't be calling you. I just need someone to listen to me right now. Yeah, and I don't want to have to, If in my worst moments, when someone's like, you should go outside and get some vitamin D. You should go to the gym. You're like, I don't want to do that right now. Like, I am, I am exactly. really struggling right now just to make this phone call. So when I call Rachel, and I called her Thursday because I had a bad day. I was like, I just need 10 minutes to tell you about this crap day. And she's like, go. That's all we want. I want you to listen without judgment. You don't need to fix it. Just be kind. Kind to the people around you. Be kind to yourself. It's okay right. to not be okay, essentially. Don't feel like you have to be perfect. I mean, no, that's the truth. You cannot always be perfect. And I mean, it's very... I think people have just... We're always told that you cannot show weakness. And for some people, you know, emotions, like negative emotions, are equated with weakness. And it just creates a sense of shame. And, like, the sense of shame can often lead to, like, low self-esteem and self-loathing. And it's not good. Like, that doesn't make you feel better. That makes you spiral even deeper down into whatever horrible state you're already in. Yeah, the rabbit hole, as I call it. And as somebody who has done that, I mean, my therapist has told me straight out when we started meeting, she's like, you have a shame problem. And um, a few months ago, she just told me, she just looked at me for a while and goes, you don't love yourself yet, but we're working on that. And to realize that you have that issue right. and you're not being kind to yourself and you're not letting yourself be anything but perfect is kind of, it's an eye-opening thing. It's kind of shocking. You're like, I'm, I'm fine about myself. And you're like, I never let myself mess up and be okay with that. It's okay to not be perfect, guys, as someone who has a perfectionist complex. And I think it's also really important for people who do not have a mental health diagnosis to understand this for your friends or your family who do have a mental health diagnosis. They don't always want you to fix it. Sometimes they just need you to be there. And one of the things that I was talking to Julie and George about is that for George, there's we had a conversation, um, the three of us, before we even started 
you know, we were kind of just in thinking processes of this podcast, but Georgia said some things that I didn't even think about that affected him because of me having, you know, a diagnosis. So I think later on, we're looking at doing a diagnosis about how it is to live and love somebody who has a mental health diagnosis. And I'm really looking forward to doing that podcast because I think it's going to be very interesting because, you know, you and I both do love each other, Julie. And, you know, we have other friends who, you know, we love, but all of us have a mental health diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Whereas like George doesn't have one. So I think it's really interesting to hear him and then other people that we know who don't have a mental health diagnosis, you know, how do you live and love somebody who does have that? Not saying that we're unlovable, but there are times like yesterday, I was downright mean to George. I knew I was being downright mean to him. And it was my anxiety. I present my anxiety as anger. And he had to deal with that. And he dealt with it yesterday, not always, but yesterday with like grace and love. And I hated that for him because he did nothing but like wait on you and I like hand and foot the whole entire day. <laughs> he did. He was really nice to us while he we was so nice. Burrowed on the couch. Yeah. But. but like at the same time, I was just so mean to him. And that's just one of those moments where it's like he showed me love and grace by like, hey, what are you anxious about? And I'm like, I have no idea what I'm anxious about. So he was very understanding and just let me just walk away and take time for myself. Yeah, and that's important. And I think a big reminder, and Rachel likes to remind me of this, is when you, if, especially if you have a mental health diagnosis and somebody you love has one as well and they're struggling, is that, um, you know, be kind, be supportive, but know it's not your struggle and right. you can't sacrifice your own mental health for somebody else's, which Rachel has told me numerous times. And, you know, you don't have to throw yourself on the sword. Right. For, don't sacrifice yourself. So somebody else can feel better. There's a, the world has enough martyrs. Right. And one of the things that has always kind of stuck with me is that when I was, I want to say nine or 10, my dad went um, to go do training to become an EMT. And one of the things that they told them first off first class was you cannot take care of others unless if you were taking care of yourself. And I'm like, you know what? That makes so much sense. If I have half of a foundation and I'm trying to help somebody else, I'm going to fall and I'm not going to be able to help them. But if I have my foundation strong and I'm able to help somebody else but not take on too much of their problem, then that's great. Absolutely. Yeah. And the end of the day, be kind. Be there for people. Don't kill yourself for it. Like, don't sacrifice your own mental right. health and your own needs. And just make the world a little bit of a better place to be in. Right, which I also kind of think helps segue us into our final we're one from the so Mighty. We're doing so good at segueing. <laughs> this is like, we're doing really well. The, we are pleasantly surprised with ourselves. <laughs> Very pleasantly surprised. So the fifth one is educate those around you. And dear God, are we not doing that right like now? Like air high five. Boom. Boom. So it's just one of those things of you have to educate people. I have friends who have different mental health diagnoses than I do. And they're like, hey, I'm having a particularly hard day. Or, hey, this is how my mental health diagnosis affects my lifestyle. I'm like, oh, I had no idea. Because I don't have, like, I have a friend who has um, bipolar with psychotic features. And his life is a little bit different than mine, of course, because I don't have that diagnosis. But there are things that he and his wife deal with that I don't. And so it's really interesting to see it from their point of view and see how that affects their life. Yeah, you can't expect to know something until someone teaches it to you. And right. that's the same thing for everybody else in the world around you. When you grow up thinking it's okay to say, she's crazy, or people with schizophrenia are violent, or something oh like my gosh. that, 
you have to be educated that no wait that's not right and we shouldn't be saying that and it's right it's kind of part of that i feel like we're in a cultural revolution right now with the idea of representation and learning things outside of your own experiences exactly it's a very cool thing to be a part of can be a little topsy-turvy at the same time um but that's what this is is the idea of we we want to have the conversation so people know what it's like and it's not a taboo thing and people are willing to learn we're all really really glad you're listening and yes. we hope we're teaching you something and being helpful and i'm sure we'll hear back from you guys and we'll learn a lot more so we're excited about that and Every week that we do research, we learn more, so. Right. So we're like, of course, we're slowly building up on things that we're learning. And then even, I tell people this all the time, even though I have six and a half years of education for psychology, for counseling, there are still things that I'm learning each and every day that I just think is amazing. And one of the things that the, um, I think is kind of interesting is that the Mighty and their, and that, um article that we're actually getting the uh, resolutions off of is if you're comfortable if you're comfortable divulging your own experience with mental illness it's safe to do so and I've noticed a lot of times you know whenever I go um and tell somebody that like oh yeah I deal with social anxiety or yeah I do have days where I'm very depressed or um I just have like that cycle and people are like oh I would never have known and so there's just so many different ways that mental health can like show some people you can kind of tell that like yes their mental health shows a lot more than others but also um the mighty does a great job um they have like i said contributors so if you feel like part of wanting to get your story out there with your mental health is letting somebody else know about it let them know that they're not alone um i would definitely look into maybe writing to the mighty and seeing if they'll let you do an article or, you know, even just writing on yourself or putting something up on Facebook or just telling people your story. You don't have to go public with it, but you can start small and just exactly. tell your friends. I, I started just being honest about my mental health by talking to people that I'm friends with at work about it. And it was kind of scary to start with because oh my God, yeah, it's scary. You want these people to think the best that they can of you. And so often our society can make mental health diagnosis look so bad bad and um like you don't have your life together or something and I do a really good job at my job like at work I'm good at what I do and so being able to be like I'm really good at what I do I enjoy my work I also have a mental health diagnosis I also have anxiety and depression and I still get my stuff done and you can still depend on me and I'm going to be honest with you about it I mean I've had some people tell me later that they started going to therapy because we were honest about it and it wasn't this shameful secret Right. And I think that there's also just this, this stigma around like, I noticed with counselors of going to get counseling, because then it makes you look like you cannot hold yourself professionally. And I think that if anything, me having a mental health diagnosis makes me that much of a better counselor. Because I understand to a point where some of these people have been and what it's like to live with anxiety and depression and some other things I'm not ready to talk about yet but it's just I think it makes me a better counselor for being able to understand that and I think George wants to chime in with something yeah it it's really nice and refreshing to have people that want to talk about their issues and want to admit that they're not perfect and and it's great that you guys want to do that because it's helpful like like Julie said it helps people start it it gives them something some sure footing to walk on so it it's really important and i'm happy that both of you are willing to 
do that through this podcast. So thanks. And just, you know, get that conversation going with others. This doesn't have to be something that you have to feel ashamed. Absolutely. I agree 10,000%. So um, what did we learn, Rachel? Um, I learned that I need to be a little bit kinder to myself and more forgiving. And also I'm trying to make that switch from the word committed to the word completed for when we talk about suicide. Um, I think that those are really good things to learn and to, to work on. I will also be working to say completed instead of committed. And that's all Rachel figuring that out. So good for her. <laughs> and then I learned more about the gun violence. And oh my God, yes. how few mentally ill people actually commit mass shootings. Which I was really surprised about that as well. Because like 5% is very low. I thought less it would have been 5%. less than 5%. Thank you for correcting me. Because you would think it would be a little bit higher than that because of the way how media portrays everything. Mm-hmm. Like everybody always wants to say that, well, they had a mental health or they had an undiagnosed mental health illness. And I mean, that always kind of makes my skin crawl. But at the same time, it's like, oh, no, they didn't stop trying to make this look like people with a mental illness are crazy. Yeah, let's look for a different cause than mental illness because that's not the cause. (laughs) No, I mean, I do think that we have a far way to go in the United States with how we approach mental illness and how we need to help people who have a mental illness. So what are you? Yeah. Are you ready? Are you ready? I'm so ready. Do you want to go first? Sure. Okay. So this is when we are about to talk about our own mental health resolutions. And Julie has so politely told us that she would like to go first. So what are your five? Yeah, we did choose five on purpose because there's five in the mighty article. So we were super original with that. Yes. Um, my first one is to actually go out and do something on my bad days, on my low days. Um, those are the days where I just want to sit in my house and do nothing. And Saturday was kind of a day like this for me this past Saturday where I really didn't want to go meet you at the gym. I didn't want to work out. I just wanted to sit in my house, but I made myself get up and meet you. And I had so much fun at that class, at that workout class. And I felt so much better afterwards. And it's it's a normal thing for me that when I make myself go out and interact with the world, I generally feel a little better. Um, the second one is to be more honest about my feelings. I have this tendency to where like if someone has hurt my feelings, I will pretend like they didn't and I will not acknowledge it with them and I will just kind of ignore them for a couple of days because I hate for them to feel like they have any kind of power over me because my feelings are a weakness and I'm working on that because it's not logical and that's not healthy. Um, and... I was actually able to tell one of my close friends a couple weeks ago that they'd hurt my feelings, and I was proud of myself for doing that. (laughs) Um, My third one is to eat better to feel better. I do, there, there are all these studies that show us that when you eat less refined sugars and you just eat more whole foods, your anxiety and your depression, and that can be helpful to eat eat healthier and be better oh yeah and I really noticed that since I started the the new meds I'm on they've kind of messed with my stomach so I've had to eat healthier and I have felt a lot better so on top of you know the new medication I think the diet has kind of played into it so just keep eating healthy and feeling good about that Um, I'm going to keep up with my therapy 
which every week I go see my therapist because I just love her. So I'm going to keep up with that and make sure I'm not skipping them because I'm busy at work, which I can sometimes do. Be like, oh, I don't have time to meet you on this day because I have to go to this meeting. No, I I need to put my own health first. Um, And then just being okay with the fact that I'm on meds. It's the first time I've been on medication since I stopped taking Zoloft in uh, my like second year of college. So it's been a while and I didn't really want to get on the meds, but I'm feeling a lot better on them. So just to keep being okay with that. And what about you? Um, So mine are not in any kind of particular order. Um, I just kind of wrote them down as I thought about them. But my first one is to take my meds. We're on a meds theme. (laughs) So what funny thing is, is that my um, nurse practitioner, my nurse practitioner um, gave me some medication for ADHD and I didn't take them for the first two weeks because I kept on forgetting to pick them up <laughs> from the pharmacy. So there is that. Um, also, for me, it's just it's kind of hard to remember when to take what. I'm not taking a lot, but I've kind of found the rhythm of things. I take my um, ADHD meds in the morning while I'm eating breakfast. I take my fluoxetine, which is Prozac. I take that at 10. And then um, I have a PRN, which is as needed for anxiety and I take that whenever I feel like I need it. And so I just noticed that I feel a lot better when I'm on meds than when I'm not on them. And so I want to continue to do that. And also if I need to like up dosages or go down on dosages, I want to be able to do that as well. Um, My second one is continue to see my therapist when needed. So what I want to remind everybody is that you don't have this conversation. Okay, let me say this. Have this conversation with your therapist. So mine, he told me he's not going to like want to see me every week or every other week. He wants me to come to him as I need him. And through the holiday season, I needed him a lot um, just because the holidays are hard for everybody. But as of right now, I don't really feel the need to see my therapist. But whenever I do get to that point where I'm like, okay, this is coming up. I know that this is a triggering date. Um, I need to probably set up a time to see him or this is going to happen. I know that this normally sets me off. I need to go see him. So I'm going to try and do that. Um, number three is do my best at my job. Um, as I said, I have social anxiety, which is really shitty when you work as a counselor because you have to socialize. So, and I think for me, the hardest part is, is just socializing with the people that I like I work with, like I work in elementary, I have no issue working with the people in elementary, but like the people who work in middle school and high school, I don't really have a relationship with them because I don't have to. However, um, it just, it makes me so anxious to have to talk to new people and I need to do that. And I mean, that's just part of being a professional. I need to be able to talk to them. Um, and then also being able to do my best at my job, which is being able to help these kids who have this emotional disturbance who need help. Um, be healthier is my number four. Um, I've spent so much of my life hating my body um, and using food as a coping skill. So this year I'm going to work on loving my body and embracing everything that it can do. Um, I read somewhere that it was on Pinterest, of course, because dear God, Pinterest is like the source of all inspiration. I actually have two inspiration boards on Pinterest because I like inspirational quotes. But anyway, one of them was talking about how a workout should be a celebration of what your body can do versus what your body can't do. And since I've switched over to that like thought process, it's like, oh my God, 
you know, I can, I can run, I can jump, I can do these different things that like some of my friends can't do. So just celebrating the fact that my body can do that, it just, it makes it so much better. And then like what you said with food, you and I are on completely different ways of eating. We definitely, definitely are. So I'm on a high fat, low carb, whereas Julie is not. I... I, my body just won't allow me to eat the way hers does, but her diet that she's on prevents is like helping prevent her headaches. Right. So I haven't. I don't get migraines with it. I don't bloat. I don't like. There's just so many benefits to me eating that way that just work for me. And George does it too, and it works for him. But it doesn't work for everybody. So the fact that it works for me, I'm gonna keep on working on it. Um, and then number five, this is my favorite and this is something that I just have to do but it's to take time to do things that make me uncomfortable I have to get out of my comfort zone I will not if somebody doesn't make me but the thing is is that I need to be able to make myself do it so a lot of times I hate doing things by myself hence you know the social anxiety so I kind of want to work on like going out to eat by myself going to workouts by myself going to movies by myself yeah I was gonna say go to movies Yeah, we're working on that. I have a really weird thing about going to see movies, which that's a different topic for later, but definitely should work on going to see movies. And I think that Julie and I are going to work on that. And then eventually I'm going to ditch her and go see movies by myself. Oh, thanks, jerk. (laughs) But you and I can still go see movies together, but I'll go see like... I'll tell you what, I don't even have social anxiety, but seeing it, I've only seen a movie by myself one time because it's just really awkward. Seeing it by yourself, I think we'll just work on getting you into a movie theater to start with. Well, okay, so like going to see movies isn't too bad. Like, isn't bad to do that by yourself, I think, because you're in a dark room anyway, so nobody can tell that you're by yourself. Like, if you go out to eat by yourself, I always feel like everybody's like honing in on me and like, oh my God, that girl's by herself. What's wrong with her? Or like, I don't know. I just feel super uncomfortable. You're on a business trip. You know what? I should just do that. Well, anyways, those are my five things. And you told us your five things. So um, if you guys feel free to go ahead and tell us your five things that you want to work on this year. Um, yeah, we might steal some of them. We might be like, man, hers was a lot better than mine. Hers is a lot better than mine or his is a lot better than mine. But feel free to drop off your five um, New Year's resolutions either in our Facebook or on Twitter. We have an email. We even have an email. Um which we have all of that on our Facebook and our Twitter. And we told everybody in the last podcast, but George, would you like to remind everybody what those are? Our email is whatarethethinkingpodcast at gmail.com. Our Twitter is at WTRTheyThinking. And our Facebook page is what are they thinking Podcast. Correct. So. That's awesome. George setting up our social media and then... Julie and I slowly working on that as well. I think she is working more on Twitter because I have no idea what I'm doing there. I'm and then slowly diving into it. Slowly diving into it. And then we're all trying to figure out Facebook as well. So. Well, we have, we've we have, been on Facebook. We've we don't been on not Facebook, know how but to it's use it. It's so interesting because I like went to go set that up. And there's a, if any of you guys do not have a business page through Facebook, it, it looks kind of different and it just works a little bit differently. So I'm trying to work on that. So bear with us on it. Um, But yeah. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next episode. But until we come back, take care of yourself. And don't be an asshole. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.